On May 23rd, members gathered at an Ivy Ideas Night with Dr. John Hillen, former Assistant Secretary of State, former U.S. Army officer, and now Professor of Leadership and Strategy at George Mason University, to discuss his new book, What Happens Now? Reinvent Yourself as a Leader Before Your Business Outruns You. In this illuminating talk, Hillen explains that as business challenges get more sophisticated, a different set of strategic and interpersonal skills are required of leaders, and he identifies the common stalls or warning signs to look out for, while also providing tips and tools for assessing and overcoming these stalls. Based on his work with hundreds of leaders and organizations, Hillen explains how to overcome these challenges, not with more tools, data, or analytics, but by a radically changed mindset, behaviors, and skills to become a reinvented, sophisticated leader. Great. So thanks, guys. Thanks for, for coming out. I really appreciate it. I've written a book about leadership, which I've been teaching, and see who's one of my students here, a couple of performers, too. I've been teaching to uh, in the MBA program at George Mason for a couple of years. The MBA program at Mason is 26 to 40-year-old mid-career professionals. So it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's people in the one of the more interesting parts of their early career. So this is not a CEO book. This is not a uh, when you're Jack Welch or, you know, Virginia Romany running IBM that applies to you. This applies at every level of leadership. And the research that went into it and the, the number of case studies are uh, very rich and very diverse. NGOs, government agencies, international businesses, um, businesses led by people of every age, background, race, color, gender, you name it. And try to pull out some of the universal lessons of leadership. And I want to share some with you tonight. And I'll kind of run through pretty fast and, and in a summary way, because I find it most interesting to get into discussion. And this book is built around seven stalls that me and my co-author found that leaders commonly confront, regardless of your personality, regardless of your style, regardless of your circumstances, leaders commonly confront these seven stalls. So the audience participation piece is one of these stalls may resonate with you. For some reason, and uh, I mean, you don't have to, uh, you know, uh, overshare. It's not a debilitating thing to have been through a leadership stall. I'm, I call myself out seven or eight times in this book, uh, but during discussion, as I found since I've been touring with the book for the past couple of weeks around parts of the country, people want to say, "Hey, that's the one that got me." Let me share my experience that really resonated with me. So maybe keep your eyes peeled for that. But the setting of the book is what happens when your organization grows, but you don't. And you get outrun by your organization. The setting of this book is not an accident scene or a crime scene. We're not coming onto the scene and saying, oh, look at this poor reckless leader here. Uh, let's examine what went wrong. And there are a lot of books like that. The setting for our book is more, is more like the big win party, the big success party, because you've been amazingly successful. And now you're celebrating. But we're, it's, our setting is like at the end of the party. When the drinks are starting to run out and you're starting to realize how hungover you're going to be the next day, <laughs> and then you're like, oh shit, what did we just do to ourselves? We just won this huge deal and we're going to have, we're going to be in four countries and we're going to have 17 products and we're going to have all these new stakeholders. Da 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 da. This kind of thing. And I think back to when I, I took the company public in 2009. It was one of only, there were only like 20 IPOs in the entire American economy that year. And we were all excited, right? We're going public, we're raising money, we're doing all these things in the middle of a recession. We got way more news than we otherwise might have gotten because of the economic tenor of the times. But I remember towards the end of that night, 
or early that morning, it was like five o'clock in Manhattan. They were at the ninth place we went to, and we're all still graduating. And they were like, that's kind of the setting of our book. This phenomenon of when your organization grows or changes, but you don't, tends to happen after periods of success. 100% of the many, many hundreds and hundreds of executives, companies, or other kinds of organizations that Mark and I, my co-author and I, have worked with over the years, 100% of them made plans to grow or change. I've never run into an organization yet where somebody's like, the business plan for this year is to stay exactly the same, <laughs> right? This doesn't happen. NGO, it doesn't matter what kind of organization you are. Everyone wants to grow or change. There's a kind of inherent dynamicism in, in, the, in the organizational experience around that. But a much smaller percentage of the leaders who run those enterprises make plans to grow or change themselves with the same deliberation, with the same analysis, with the same planning, with the same investment that they made for their organizations. So that's why you get this phenomenon of being outrun by your organization. So we wrote the book to try to help people see that in advance and prevent. Just talk about the executive development journey for a minute so to get us all in context. You think about your career trajectory with the beginning to the end. Uh, and you generally follow a do manage the beginning of your career you're doing, you're a doer. Okay? And then as you start to move into the annoying business of having to other see over human beings, right? Now you're managing, you're managing some things. And then maybe towards the end of your career, you're leading. And we can talk about the distinction. I think it's a powerful distinction between managing and leading. And the things you do on the job, day to day, week to week, month to month, change during that period. So if, if I go here at the beginning of my career, the things I'm doing in the office or in the field or out wherever I'm doing my work tend to be mostly technical and tactical skills. Okay? And then as I move along through my career, I tend to start to have to do strategic and interpersonal skills and mix that in. Okay? And you tend to get, your career tends to advance based upon your ability to have strategic and interpersonal or even political skills. Everybody here is going through that journey right now in the career where we're at different parts of the career. Right? But it's very, very common and applies almost everywhere. There are very few exceptions. You may get somebody like a, uh, a, a master craftsperson. You know, maybe like someone who's just the best person at writing a certain kind of code and technology company ever that doesn't want to do anything but that for 30 years. And they may be sort of like a master. But, but a chief technology officer, you talk with chief technology officers around the country, 100% of their work is strategic and interpersonal. They're not writing code. They're not in the lab. They're not inventing anything. They're dealing with other people and they're dealing with other actors in the marketplace. And especially people like that have to retrain their skills to do that. So if I hire four accountants in my firm, the first one who gets promoted two years into that from that cohort is probably the best accountant. They have the best technical and tactical skills because they're still mostly being judged here. The second promotion, four years in, I'm probably gonna promote the best leader, not the best accountant. Because now their skills are more evenly shared between strategic, interpersonal, and technical tactics. What we found in the book is that when situations change, when, when you're successful and your organization arrives in a new place, the game has changed. You're on a new playing field. There's a whole new set of conditions. And you're confronted with a lot of issues of new complexity and confronted with a lot of issues of new sophistication. And it's the issues of 
of sophistication, and I'll talk about what they mean, that caused people to stall. New complexity is more stuff, okay? More stuff that you know you've already encountered before, just more of it. More customers, more locations, more employees, more stakeholders, more of the same. And we use an expression in the book, we say that's like the sort of light side of the moon. That's, that's the side of the moon you can see. And it, 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 there really are differences in scale. So maybe you go to multiple locations, maybe you add 100 employees, maybe you, uh, you, uh, you go to uh, different countries and so on. But largely, it's just more stuff. The bigger challenge tends to be challenges of sophistication rather than complexity. And there are differences in kind. So I'll give you an example. The chief financial officer of a, of a private company has to oversee things like treasury and payroll and vendor management and all the financial things, maybe a local bank and their lending facility. But if that same company goes public, all of a sudden the chief financial officer's job is to almost do nothing but communicate with outside shareholders or analysts or press or regulators or politicians. It's a totally different skill set than overseeing the internal financial workings of, of a company. So that's a difference in kind, as opposed to a difference. They didn't, they didn't just get more treasury, more supply chain, more vendor management, more payroll. They got a totally different job, even though the title says it's exactly the same. It's kind of an example of differences in kind. Another one we use in the book, my friend Frank Lavin, who used to be an undersecretary of commerce over here, spent about half his life in Asia, runs a business in Asia, helping American companies figure out importing into China. And uh, we tell a story, he's working with a, uh, a large, very famous American uh, chocolatier uh, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I'm not gonna name the company. Uh, and uh, and uh, the, new, the new complexity of a Hershey expanding to China is more customers, more locations, more distribution, Right? That can all be figured out. That's what we have on the light side of the moon. We actually tend to have a lot of tools in our management lives to figure this stuff out. We have data analytics. We have consultants. We can reorganize. We can hire more people or new people. We can bring in skills. We have Six Sigma, lean manufacturing, total quality management, business process engineering, right? All these fads and trends, these management fads and trends, they're all meant to wrestle down the complexity of, of, of uh, new opportunities like expanding to China. What in fact Frank had to work with, in this case Hershey on, was the fact that Hershey's gonna be a, a luxury chocolate in China, and as a result, it's gonna be given as a gift. And when it's given as a gift, the Chinese consumer, it's not transactional. They wanna have a relationship with that product. They wanna have experience with that product. It's, it's, it's a special thing, like any luxury good you can think of in your life, and so it's not just expanding the distribution chain in some way. You've got everything's different. Everything's different about sales, about marketing, about approach to market. And so there's another good example. We have several in the book of you know the, the difference between the things you can see, the challenges you can see. And by the way, those are really hard. I'm not just counting those, right? We'll tear our hair out and work 18 hours a day trying to solve new complexity. What we found is that leaders stall when they hit differences in kind, we call the challenges of sophistication, and they confuse the two. So they try to get out of a sophistication challenge by reorganizing, by working harder, by asking for more reports, by changing the flow of meetings, by 
you know, getting new data analytics by calling in a consulting firm to help. That tends to not solve the problem if, in fact, the problem is here. So I want to talk about the seven stalls in the book uh, that come about as a result of confusing complexity and sophistication. What I'll do is I'll talk about each of the stalls. In the book, we have warning signs for each stall, tests and assessments that you can use to re really see, you know, assess that you're, you are where you are, and then actions to recover. And with seven stalls and six or seven each of those, that's a lot of stuff, right? So I'm just gonna refer to a couple of examples, but I wanna give you flavor for the stalls. The first stall is really one that we call leader without a story. It's when you fail to provide. There's actually in a DCIV member, some of you may know, anybody know Mike Barnett? He runs a company called Ingo. Couldn't be here tonight, um, but it's a very creative software company that does trade show attendee management matching software. Very sophisticated, used by the biggest trade show organizers in the world. And essentially, anybody ever have to go to trade shows or been to trade shows, right? You know, there's like 9,000 people there. And by the way, networking, I tell people networking is not handing your business card to a stranger, right? That's not a relationship building mechanism, right? So if you really want actual human interaction with non-transactional relationship building, you're not going to find it bumping into people randomly among 5,000 people at a trade show. So Mike's software, Ingo's software, helps solve that problem by pre-linking you up based upon profiles and what you talked about and scraping social sites and everything with people you should know, people you should get to know and put you together automatically. So you have a much better chance of having a higher rate of success of getting with the right people at trade shows. So Mike's running this company, started this company, and about every, like with startups, about every couple of months, he has to completely retell the story to everybody about why the company exists, what it's about, why the world should look different because Ingo exists, and how people should behave around here. And this is the traditional narrative of purpose. It's got mixtures of mission and vision and values and identity and culture all mixed in there. Right? Things that is, Simon Sinek has you know, that great book, Start With Why, and I think you do. You need to start with why. But the question we add on to Simon's work is you should also talk about the question, and, and another deeper, interesting question is, what are we about here? I like the question. I first heard that in a meeting. I was in a meeting, it's on the board. I can remember it was a board of consultants. Some new person showed up, very powerful, experienced executive, and uh, you know, kind of threw out some amazing business idea on the table, and it just fell flat. And it made a lot of sense to me, too. Again, I was like, that's, that's genius. I don't know if I was picked up And... Uh, and somebody leaned over and they said, do you understand what we're about here? You know, and the signal they were sending is that may be brilliant and genius, but that's, that's not what we're about here. And what we were about were maybe that's not really consistent with the way we do the world. Maybe it's not really consistent with the behaviors and culture and value system we have here. Maybe that's not consistent with just our methodology of approaching our market. It could be any number of things, but purpose is a boss when the boss is not around. Right? So some of the warning signs we have for when you stalled in purpose is you can't, we have a thing called the kitchen cable test. If you can't tell your mom what your strategy in 35 words or less, you don't have it. Okay? <laughs> I'm serious. Your mom, if your mom just looks at you quizzically and says, I don't understand what your company does, okay? go back and redo your purpose. Okay, kitchen table test. Or a neighbor or a friend or, or, or anybody, intelligent dog if you have one. Uh, you, know, you, really, you really should be able to grab the essential narrative of providing.
providing purpose for people. Pretty crisply, we provide a lot of things. So, so that's a signal. One of the signals from Mike Barnett is his single best customer. She was amazing, incredibly articulate executive. She was the only one in the world who got him and where the company was going. He was so happy to have her as a customer. And not only a customer, but a mentor. She introduced him around at some of these shows to other potential customers. He had been dying to meet this person, and she was going to do the introduction. She said, don't worry, I'll tell him what you're about. He's like, oh, good, because you totally get it. You completely get it. And then she told him what the company was about, and it was unrecognizable to him. He had no idea. He's like, I don't even know who she's talking about. He's like, wow, my best customer can't articulate you know, what we're about. I, I must be screwing something up. Right? So having to constantly go back in, especially if you have new employees, new opportunities, constantly redefine purpose. Why are we all here? What are we trying to get done? What is the way we get done things around here? What are our value systems? What's our identity? And how is that different than other actors' identity in the same space we're in? And redefining that is a real skill set that leaders need to have. So stalling when you fail to provide purpose is pretty common. Often comes up people early in their career. Another stall we talk about is stalling teams. There's been a lot of great work about teams. Stan McChrystal uh, wrote a very good book called Team of Teams. Um, he, he blurred this book. But it's still amazing how fragile teams are. And the aha for us in our research was the more powerful and influential and accomplished and consequential the individuals are, on your teams, the harder they are to manage. Teams of all-stars are awful teams. And we, kind of, we I didn't want to pick on them. We can talk a little bit about the 2004 U.S. Olympic basketball team, which, struck, which had all these all-stars, but struggled to barely win a bronze and lost. It's unthinkable that the U.S. lost, lost three out of seven games in the Olympics. They just didn't play together. And all the players came back from that. LeBron James and others said, we did not play together. We were 12 individuals running around. We didn't play together at all as a team. They self-diagnosed their own problem as a team. So we, we, we chart that. And what happened, I've done it as a CEO. When we were really, really busy and getting really, really big, I was like, I don't need to babysit these people. I'm paying them half a million dollars a year. You know, Why should I have to babysit them? I hired grown-ups. Grown-ups self-manage right, as teams. You know, I don't need to be in there. And so I had a kind of policy of benign neglect on the team. And of course, it was awful. It was a disaster, right? And uh, I neglected my duties as a CEO to be even more involved and make sure they worked as a team. We, we talk in the book about the difference between a working group and a team. Anybody here, um, is anybody here a swimmer, ran track and, did, did track and field events, anything like that? Anybody, a couple folks? So a swim team, or, or a track and field team is what we call a working group because all the events are actually individual events, even though the scores are added up to give you a team result. Okay, I'm a swimmer, so I think about that. Even on relays, there's only one swimmer allowed in the pool at any one time. It's illegal, right, to have any more. So it's all individual, but even though they add up the scores, so that kind of looks like a team, but it's really a working group. Whereas so like basketball or volleyball or water polo, if you want to stay with the aquatic theme, that's more of a team because everybody's in the pool or on the court together and everything changes based on everybody else's actions at any one time. And that's where you see things work together. So corporate life, NGO life, government agency life, the World Bank case study in there is exactly like that. And uh, the, the, uh, this, this policy of benign neglect when you get really accomplished people on a team is a crippling one. And I'll talk about some of the solutions that we found to these later. Um, managing stakeholders, this is a big stall people. Most people tend to hang out 
with the stakeholders that they can control. Okay, people can work for them or they can influence or something like that. Okay, if you tell somebody, hey, I want you to stop hanging out with people that you can control, and I want you to start hanging out with people that you can't control but might affect your destiny and are difficult to size, like not a lot of people want to run into that ring, right? But that's actually the higher you get in your career. We saw a lot of stalls from leaders that happened because they were spending all their time managing stakeholders we call down and in, current customers, not future customers, uh, current employees, not future employees, um, current shareholders, not potentially new shareholders, and so on. So they were, they were uh, in their comfort zone, and they were managing those stakeholders, when in fact, as organizations shift and change, the change in behavior that needs to happen among leaders is to start managing up and out, looking outside of the enterprise, not inside the enterprise, starting to form relationships. If you have to wait to need a strategic relationship, if you need a strategic relationship, it's too late to build it, okay? So, if you think the press is going to affect your future, you know, I've worked CEOs, I'm like, they're like, the press is killing me. And I'm like, well, did you talk to them? I can't talk to them. They're like, the press, they report on me. And I'm like, well, why don't you go talk to them? I can talk to them? Yeah, go talk to them. To, you know, and uh, I'm not telling you, you're, you can't tell them what to write, they're not going to listen to you, but you can tell them what you're about, and you can form a relationship. Maybe they're a better level of understanding, you'll understand their perspective, they'll understand yours, and so on. So these kinds of things, managing external actors who might exert an amazing influence over your future, but don't work for you, is a very difficult thing for leaders to spend their time and energy out there. We have a, we have a tool we use in there called the, uh, the Power Influence Grid. you got to figure out who's got power, who's got influence, and who's got both, and how to spend your time and energy. So every chapter has, has a lot of tools around it, but that's another very common stall, is not figuring out what stakeholders really matter and which ones you, the leader, need to spend time in. I When I work with uh, CEOs and coaching and things, I have people do a stakeholder map. Let's map all your stakeholders. Who has a stake in your success? You as a person and also your organization. When was the last time you touched that stakeholder? Are they important? Really important. You haven't seen them for a year. Cool. You know? And then you got to start aligning your energy around which stakeholders matter the most. Very common stall. Another stall, leading change. Leading change is probably the most difficult thing for leaders. Great managers have a lot of tools to wrestle down complexity, right? To, to make order out of chaos. And, and they're really good at that. Um, but that means you have a playbook. You know, you're, you're going to be the manager who applies the policy manual, who stuffs the information into the report, who churns out the right answer. But people who lead change are leading you into a future that hasn't yet happened. It's unknown. You have no idea how it's going to turn out. You can run models. You can look at the data. You can do things like that. But leading change is ultimately a step into the unknown. So why should you follow anybody into the unknown? They're telling you a story about a place you're going to go that hasn't yet happened. You don't know if it's going to be true or not, right? So there's real art to this. We found there's a couple of steps that where leaders really struggle um, that where they can be good. One is understanding the difference between lean and rich communications. A lot of leaders break down on that. They send out mass emails. They do town hall meetings. They videotape cute videos of themselves and you know pipe them out to everybody's things. In an age in which people you know, don't interact with face to face anymore, maybe that's all necessary. It's table stakes. 
but it's not rich. It's not rich communications like dialogues with small groups of leaders, honest, and perhaps even painful conversations about change with leaders in the organization, uh, working through the, uh, the, the people, the resistors, working through the resistors, right, and understanding their concerns. Rich, difficult, time-consuming dialogue tends to be the only way to get through change. And then because you went through that process, learning to express the change on the terms of your followers, not yours. And a lot of CEOs, I'm not like, well, why do you want to do this massive change? It's wrenching. It's going to throw everybody into a tizzy. Well, it's going to raise the stock price. I'm like, oh, that's a motivator right there. That's going to raise the stock price. How many people care about stock? Everybody cares about stock price. I mean, how many people really care about stock price? You know, once you say it on their terms, well, what are their terms? That's what you got to find out. Right? You got to go out there and find out what do you value in this? What are you scared about? What causes you anxiety is change. Let me tell you about the benefits on those terms. And oh, by the way, one of the great byproducts if we pull off this massive crazy thing is the stock price might go up. But that's not why we're here. You know, that's just a necessary, healthy byproduct if we do it all right. So different approach thing. But we see a lot of stalls and we chart, we have case studies of all different kinds of organizations in and around this in the book. Uh, a fifth change is when leaders stall because the reason people followed them before is not good enough to keep following. Most people get followed earlier in their career because of one of two things, their position and their authority. So, well, you know, why are we following her? Well, she got the corner office, man. Have you seen that? It's huge, right? She's, she's the boss. Or uh, because of their competencies. Why did they listen to him in the meeting? He's the expert. He's the expert. He's got the data, right? One of those two things. And for most people, that's enough earlier in their career. They've been given some kind of position or stature or authority, or they have some kind of expertise or incredible competency in what they do. Okay, As organizations grow and as leaders grow through their own careers, all of a sudden, they lose touch with the data. We talk to so many leaders, you get to the point, they're like, it's really scary. The first meeting you go into on a really specific issue, and you're the decision-making authority, every single person in the meeting knows more than you do about that issue. You're the least informed person in the meeting and you're in charge. Why would anybody follow you? Why would anybody follow you in that circumstance? Right? Why should we do it this way? Because I said so. Well, that works. Then so they're just going to go work somewhere else. And we have a case study with this incredible woman in the book named Dawn Halfacre. Dawn was a West Point grad, military police officer, one of the first women who was a combat military police officer. Went to Iraq in 2005, 2006 and, and got blown up in an ambush. Lost an arm. In a coma for a couple months, HBO made a great documentary about her. But when she came out of her coma, I came out of her, I think she, I remember she talked to me at my office down here on K Street in 2007. She's like, I'm going to start a company. And I'm like, well, that's a little crazy. Uh, you're like a one-armed PTSD combat vet, right? Dawn. And she's like, no, I think I'll just start a company. I'm like, okay, let's go. Dawn's company is now about 400 people. She's killing it. She was the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year. And she's doing amazing stuff third kid on the way. I mean, everything's just, she's, she's great. But she really had to struggle, we talk about in the book, with the difference between the authority that the Army gave her as a young officer, a West Point grad, versus running a, a, a commercial company where people have to want to work for you. And you can't just tell them, they got to want to work for you. For her, that was a real transition. And she's got a pretty inspiring story, right? But even that doesn't last that long. 
People are like, yeah, I'm working for the that famous, you know, one-armed lady, but she's kind of jerky. That that doesn't work after a while, right? The HBO the HBO documentary Magic wears off. Don's just Don's just had to become a great leader. Don's a very close friend of mine, which is why I talk about this way, right? And we talk about it in the book's way. She's very vulnerable in the book. All the leaders we talk about in the book are very vulnerable. But she's become an amazingly inspiring leader in her own right. Where you don't even think about any of that other stuff anymore. None of that other stuff matters because you follow her not because of her confidence or her authority but because of her character and her judgment so when leaders get the stall on this authority they tend to rest on their business acumen when in fact they should be trying to build up their range their range of character i'll talk about that solutions the sixth stall we looked at and some of you may be familiar with this we call it the hamster on the wheel phenomenon where things aren't working for you so your natural reaction is i'm just going to work harder Right? I'm just going to spend more time in the office. I'm going to double down. And it's a stall in where you spend your time and energy. How do you invest your time and energy? It's very, very difficult for leaders to kind of reinvent themselves, take their time and energy, and put it in other places. They don't trust other people to do their jobs. That's a clear warning sign. Um, they tend to run to their comfort zone instead of to where they really need to be. You know, sometimes you just need to look across all that chaos and activity and say, I know I can do that, I can do that, I can do that, but I'm the only person who can do that. Okay? Other people can do this, and then you just have to drop them. So that kind of behavior, as organizations grow and scale, is necessary for leaders, and this is a very common stall. And then finally, the preeminent stall, which is not being able to develop others. If the whole point of leadership is to achieve through others, Leaders have to be able to develop others. We find a lot of leaders who just assume this is going to happen, right? There's an others store out there. I'll just go buy some, you know, from uh, from executive recruiter or something if I need leaders. I don't. I don't have time to sit around nursemaiding people, you know, mentoring them. That guy's in my office complaining every day anyway. I'm supposed to coach coach him. Uh, it'll drive me nuts, right? I get get this all the time from leaders I work with. The best leaders we found spend about 50% of their time coaching, mentoring, and bringing people along. They don't outsource it. They don't outsource it to HR. They don't outsource it to a consultancy. They own the leadership development in their enterprises and bring people up because they know that that empowers them and allows them to back off and elevate. So those are the seven stalls. And we have a bunch of solutions in there, warning signs, as I mentioned, and other things. Very quickly. Just to help people remember. So in a storytelling stall, we really make a big point about being the, the torchbearer, the cultural torchbearer. It's a tremendously powerful tool for a leader to have an engaging, uh, compelling narrative that captures this combination of mission, vision, values, culture, and everything else. Uh, Ingvar Kamprand, who is the, the guy who started IKEA, any frustrated IKEA builders in here who can never figure out those damn instructions? Tell me about it, Jim. It's killing me. Anyway, we have Ingvar Cameron to thank for that. But as he rapidly expanded IKEA, he did not have policy manuals or handbooks for how to open up new things. He had a culture and a couple of very simple rules and his own personal behavior. And he modeled the behavior of what was important to IKEA. And so new store managers and new country managers say, I've got what I need. I've got a general direction, and I've got Ingvar's thesis about how a revolutionary furniture store should approach the market 
and try to offer a very different value proposition to people who were buying furniture in Europe at the time than later North America. It's a great example. You just grab the torch and use a cultural torch bearer, modeling the behavior and putting together this narrative that could be a guide for everybody when you didn't have a policy handbook. The second stall, if you're in a teamwork stall, then it really is a matter of making oneself a true captain. It's an incredible investment in time for the leaders we saw that were successful in this. One of the people we profile in this is named John Rogers. John was a basketball player in Princeton. He started the biggest, it's, it's by far and away the biggest, the biggest African-American-owned investment house called Aerial Funds out of Chicago. John has his team also. He's got a woman named Melody Hodson working for him. You may have seen her. She's on ABC a lot. She's like a money person. She's written a bunch of great books. He's got all these all-stars working for him. Great friends with President Obama. He hangs out with Warren Buffett. I mean, these guys running these kind of circles. So to manage this huge firm, Aerial Funds, that he started with hundreds of billions of dollars under management and bringing serious players, he still spends a lot of his time trying to make sure these people who are incredible stars in their own right really act as a team and not a working group. And that, that was really compelling for me because you're tempted looking from the outside, it's an incredible American success story, to say, well, he just, he's able to figure out and walk away, right? But no, actually, he's got it best. All the same things you have, all the same human issues you have working with your teams in the workplace, the angst, the gut-wrenchingness, the, the celebrations, the pain, every team has that. And, and uh, every leader, regardless of their level. Aligning stakeholders, I mentioned lifting and shifting and broadening reach. When I was up in New York preparing for our IPO, I gave this pitch to a group of potential shareholders, analysts, reporters, regulators, things like that. And uh, I thought I was pretty good. I thought I was a pretty good communicator. So I gave this 25-minute pitch about my company. Jai had kind of you know, put together from scratch, so I knew it pretty darn well and how great it was. And then they just savaged me for about 20 minutes and said, you are incapable of communicating anything. And I was like, oh, I'm going to assist Secretary of State when I was 39. I think I'm doing okay. They're like, no, you suck. Uh, and here's why you suck, uh, which was really helpful, really helpful to me, right? And Because basically, I was talking in the language of the stakeholders I had, not in the language of the stakeholders I was hoping to get. They valued different things. They communicated differently. Their cognitive skills were differently. They processed information in a different way. I had been hanging out with customers and employees and people, and these were investment bankers and hedge fund managers, people like that. And they told me they were interested in the whole thing, but they needed it expressed in a way that showed I understood them. So then I was like, well, I gotta start spending time, you know, outside of the barn here and get off the farm. So building your reach. It is never too early to start building your strategic network. Okay? You should have three simultaneous networks going in your life. Your personal network, which everybody you know has. Your operational network, which is sort of like the 10 to 12 people that you have to touch every day to get your job done. And then you should have a strategic network, which are people that you don't rely on to get your job done, but need to be in your network for the purposes of pulling you forward into interesting different places, or uh, maybe coming in handy down the road. Sometimes it's really hard to see. And those relationships need to be non-transactional. This is not a you scratch my back, I scratch yours. This is a I value you, you value me. And this is a win-win for both of us to know each other. Right? So even with, even with competitors, when I was a CEO, I think there's a guy see you my competitors. You can't talk to the competitors. Why not? Call them up. It's like to go to lunch. Really? Yeah. Let's go to lunch. I want to hear about how you think about the world. 
it turned out to be really valuable to have competitors in my strategic network, right? So build a strategic network, build your reach, uh, get out there and um, and truly think about who's really a stakeholder in your universe. On leading change, uh, we have this phrase here, you've got to be the chief explaining officer. Okay, this, this part of the book is not just about communications, but communications is a big skill. But it's about the hard work you have to do to effectively communicate, to understand your audience. Transmission is not reception. Any parents in here? Okay? Anybody? Just poor me? <laughs> Suffering with three teenagers in the house? All right, all right. There's, there's, there was my friend over there. All right, right? It's not what you're saying that matters. It's what they're hearing. So it's the same thing when you're trying to lead change. It's not what you're saying. It's what they're hearing. What are they hearing? Ask them. Right? Ask them. Have these honest conversations. Dialogue. Being the chief explaining officer takes up a lot of time. I did this um, I did this acquisition. I did four acquisitions in 18 months of my company. So I was kind of always on the road buying companies. I did this acquisition, and it was just a perfect fit. And I'm a strategist, right? I teach strategy at school. There's a couple of former students in here. And so for me, I'm just going to explain in strategic terms. That's just like the only interesting way to think about the world, right? In strategic terms. And I'm talking in this room of like 200 employees that came to that town hall from the company we just acquired. I'm talking about all the amazing strategic things that are going to happen now that we've combined these two enterprises. And, and they're mostly scientists, like crypto mathematicians. Anybody ever dated a crypto mathematician? <laughs> Precisely, right? They're not out there. They're not on the social circuit. You can't. Okay, crypto math. I love, I love you guys. Many crypto mathematicians watching. So hey, I'm just getting this stone cold look from from the scientists because uh, I'm not saying anything that's important to them. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to myself. And so I got zero reaction. They were definitely not on board. I came back to my office. One of my colleagues said, "How'd it go?" I said, "I said it was awful. This is the twelfth time I talked, and they still don't get it." And he said, "Well, two things." He said, "You have 88 more times to go." You have to tell people's names a hundred times. And two, maybe you're the problem. And uh, I was like, oh. And uh, then, you know, I had to go through the process of rethinking and reinventing my Maybe I was the problem. I wasn't speaking on their terms. So being the chief explaining officer is not about being a uh, silver-tongued communicator. It's about a very rich understanding of um, communicating an unknown, uncertain future to people on their terms so that they're willing to come along. Shifting the source of your authority. There is no store that you can go to to buy like gravitas or range or perspective or wisdom or judgment. But these are the sources of authority for leaders as you get to your career. There's a young leader at the Department of the Treasury. He's a student of mine a couple years ago. Real high flyer. I mean, like the youngest GS-15 in the history of GS-15s. He told a story about how he got all these people over twice his age. He walks into meetings. When he met his boss at his latest assignment, his boss said, what do you like, 12? That was the opening comment, okay, to this young leader. So that's really encouraging, right, for him. So how did he get these people in a meeting in which he was in charge, who were two times his age or older, to listen to him, is whenever an issue came up that was kind of had moral or ethical implications, he had the ready answer. He was on the high ground saying, well, this is the right way. This isn't how we do things right. This is the right way to do things. And here's why. So he took the high ground. And then he took the what I call the wide ground, which is he always talked about the big strategic long-term wide impact of things. 
So he wouldn't say, let's get this done by Friday because it's due Friday. He'd say, let's get this done by Friday because if we get it done by Friday, then we push the organization here. And if the organization is here, then we can see there. And if we can see there, we can do that. If we can accomplish that, we do that. Okay, so all of a sudden, he's the grown-up in the room. This combination of two things, taking the high ground and taking the wide ground, he's exhibiting the gravitas. He's exhibiting not just business smarts, but wisdom. Not just acumen with the numbers or expertise with the data, but judgment, rectitude, character. And those are the reasons people follow others later in their career. So you have to almost entirely shift your skill set. Norm Augustine, the former chairman and CEO of Lockheed Martin, wrote a photo book, and he was a terrific CEO, one, one of the best. But it's also terrific, interesting, literate, funny guy. He wrote a book about Shakespeare and leadership, terrific philanthropist. So very humane, interesting guy. But he was trained as an aerospace engineer, which is really useful if running an aerospace company, right? When he became CEO, he says in the forward of our book, he spent almost all his time with bankers, lawyers, politicians, regulators. He didn't do any engineering at all. He didn't even get to talk to engineers in his own company. But that's what he was trained for. But by the time he got to the end of his career, he had to have an entirely different skill set and nothing to do with his training work. That happens with most people throughout their careers. So if you can see it in advance, you can start building up this additional skill set you're going to need with range and perspective and wisdom and gravity. I have a piece about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, and because Zuckerberg went on the hill, he said, we don't have a business problem, we have a philosophy problem. So I had a piece in Market Watch two weeks ago that said, who's the chief philosophy officer at Facebook? Well, guess what? You are. You're the leader. You're the chief philosophy officer. You're the chief ethics officer. Do you have the skills to do that? Do you have the training, the wisdom to think through that? And that's what I asked him, Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know Mark Zuckerberg. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I, I thought it was impressive in this hearing. But somebody there better is that he, he nailed it. It's exactly right. They have a philosophy problem. How they fit into the nature of a good society. They don't have a business problem. It's not about product development. It's not about capital structure. It's not about share price. It's a philosophy problem. He stated exactly right. Okay. Uh, as stall and focus, how do you maximize your time and energy investments? We have a lot of, this is a very tool-driven part of the book, where we have dashboards and ways to spend your time and energy. But the main lesson here is delegate, 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 and you got to be so willing to delegate that you're willing to throw a crystal ball you care about in the air and let it drop and break if nobody catches it. That's when you know you delegate enough, when you precipitated at least one disaster, okay? <laughs> That's when you're delegating enough. Most people run exactly the opposite way. You can just see from the laughter, right? And they don't delegate. And they hold on to things, and then they drown. They drown in their own energy. They get burnt out. So we have a lot of tools in here and other things. So if you're going to delegate, you have to develop others. Okay? The ultimate last thought, you've got to become a leader of leaders. This book's really about scale. How do you scale yourself and not get overwhelmed by things? How do you not succumb to the Peter Principle? Have you ever heard of the Peter Principle? It's it's an old concept from the late 1960s, which is every human being rises to the level of their incompetence. Okay, that's the Peter principle, right? And you hear it all the time. Ah, oh, you know, he's not ready for the prime time, right? Good guy, not ready for prime time. Okay, well, why is it? Why, why didn't somebody 10 years ago tell him what it would take to succeed in prime time and give him a development path there? Right? You know, she's amazing, but she doesn't have boardroom presence. I hear that a lot with women executives. Coach a bunch of it. She doesn't have boardroom presence. Well, what does that mean? 
right? We better get someone with boardroom presence in here. Is there a boardroom presence store that we can go out to? No, what you do is you say, this amazing executive needs the path to have you owe her and she owes putting in the hard work to have the path to build that skill set. So that's not an issue. So the book is very optimistic about the fact that there are no natural limits on human potential. There's only limits we put on ourselves. How much time and energy and passion we're willing to put in, how much support we're willing to get from the people that care about us, right? There are no limits. So we call on people to become masters of sophistication, sophisticated leaders. And the real key is most leaders, when they get into these situations, when they get overrun by their businesses, when they're challenged, they tend to focus on their organization and they play with their organization. Our favorite thing in Washington is we reorganize. Let's reorganize, right? We move the boxes around and we work chart and we have different meetings and we give out new titles and things like that. Some of that needs to be done. I'm not running down institutional reorganization. But the real key is you've got to work on yourself, not your organization. You gotta reinvent yourself, adapt new mindsets, adapt new skills, and adapt new behaviors. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.